Hey, everybody. It is time to pretend. Okay, I want us to begin this evening by pretending just, just a bit. It'll be fun, I promise. Um, so pretend that the time that you are in happens to be a time that being a Christian is punishable by death, okay? Um, so it's sometime kind of, it could happen in the past, but it could also happen in the future. It could be anywhere, right? Um, but, but the whole thing is, is that, that being a Christian is punishable by death. And so you're trying to be, be undercover, all right? You're trying to be undercover, punishable by death. But the problem is, is, is something happened that you did not know ahead of time, is that the government has put you under surveillance, and you have been under surveillance for a super long time. There's been cameras that have been at home. There's been cameras that were in your bedroom. And so every Bible study you did by yourself, devotional, every journal entry, every social media Bible post that you did, your Instagram account pictures of holding your Bible has been confiscated, right? And so it's punishable to death. And, and furthermore, they have come in and they've confiscated your Journals, uh, your crosses, your Christian T-shirts, your your uh, just everything you got, because they are trying to prove that you are in fact a Christian, and so the day has come that that they are going to put you on trial. And the prosecuting attorney is awesome, okay? Like, he's, he's just this powerhouse of a prosecuting attorney, right? And so there you are on this, the, the, the pingy, okay? You're in the, the chair. I've never been there. I don't know what they're called. And so um, it's there, and you are on trial. And the prosecuting attorney is like, he, he's bringing out journal entry by journal entry by journal entry. He's bringing up photographs of every post on social media that you have ever posted. I mean, like, the, the evidence against you is staggering. And then he brings out the t-shirts. He's bringing out your church attendance. I mean, like, they have it all. And that they have your phone call conversations, and you are scared. Like, you are, you are, are legitimately scared and, like, sweating because it's over for you. Like, like they have nailed you good. It comes time for the other the other attorney to get up and plead your case, and he says, "I don't got anything." And you're like, "Great, I am doomed. I am done," because the evidence against you for being a Christian was staggering. And so they asked for two hours because the jury has to go out and talk about it. And so during that two hours, you are by yourself. And you are like, your heart is racing. It is going nuts because you know, like, this is the end of the story. This is it for you. And so then the time comes that someone comes by the door. They tap on the door and they say, come back in. They put you back on the thingy, you know, that you're supposed to sit in. And, and the jury comes back and they don't make the eye contact at all. You know, like it's that thing, you know, they're ashamed. No eye contact. Then the jury comes in and they sit down. And then the guy who has to say the verdict, he stands up and he says, so in the case of so-and-so, 
the jury finds the defendant not guilty. And at first you're like, oh, no way. And then you're like, wait a second. How could that be? And all of a sudden you get angry and frustrated because there must be something wrong. Let's just pause it there. The thing is, is Christianity has to be about something else, correct? It has to be more than just these physical things that you can do or purchase or buy or, or engage in. It has to be more than that, right? The experience of Christianity, it truly is a journey and an experience and an engagement. It's all, it's all about Jesus. And, and throughout this whole thing, I didn't even mention Jesus at all. But the thing is, is that, 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 that the journey of Christianity has to be about Jesus and him encountering our heart and our heart encountering him and then the engagement the two have together and what happens when the two collide, our hearts and Jesus. This is, is what the beauty of coming to church is kind of all about. It's about engaging Jesus, but oftentimes it's easy to forget even here, that our goal is to engage Jesus and have him come into our hearts to teach us, to show us, engage us, confront us, you know, celebrate us, to, to see our hearts for who we are, who he created us as, and go, yes, I got something to show you. And so, so today, our goal is to approach Jesus in a passage that talks about his engagement of the temple and the engagement of the Pharisees and, and the things that happen whenever Jesus comes into the temple and is confronted by the Pharisees and when the anvil hits the hammer. Like, that's the image I get. Like, there's an anvil that hits the hammer here and sparks fly. And what happens when sparks fly in your heart? Because the truth is, whenever Jesus encounters your heart and your heart encounters Jesus, sparks have to fly. The, the story of the Gospel of Luke, especially when Jesus encounters the Pharisees or Sadducees or, or, or teachers of the law, sparks are flying. Like, sparks are flying. Because typically Jesus, he's confronting three different things. He's confronting control. He's confronting judgment. And then he's confronting, like, the epitome of religion. So judgment, control, and religion. Sparks fly. And oftentimes, in our hearts, these are three things that we just can't get past. And those were the things that were just on trial. And the judge said, not guilty. So if you have your Bibles, please turn them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 45. Before we go there, though, just... Take some time, get to go there. Um, but before we go there, I want to share with you this psalm um, that for me I've been engaging and experiencing. And it seems to me to be like this, the, the essence of the human heart encountering like the grace of God. The psalm is Psalm 118. Um, psalm 118 and for me, I've been beginning at verse 18. 
And this thing begins by the psalmist just saying, God has chastened me greatly, but he hasn't given me over to death. And then it says, he has saved me. The, the gates have been flung open. Uh, the the that the builders cast out has now become the chief cornerstone. He has saved me. He has done it. And my hearts cry out, you know, like, this is amazing. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And the psalmist, he begins this whole thing by saying that God has chastened me greatly. Like, God has, like, crushed me. Boom. But he didn't kill me. Remember, Sparks fly, right? And then he says, he has saved me. And my, my heart rejoices in the, the stone that had been cast out. He's talking about himself. I had been cast out, but now he's building upon me. He has saved me. He has saved me. The Lord saves. He saves. He will do it again. And this verse, it, this, this chapter in the book of Psalms, it's very important for us to understand it, for us to understand the things that are to come. So here we go. As a congregation, how about we say this together? When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. All right. So that is the beginning of the verse of today or the passage for today. Today, before this passage, um, Palm Sunday happened. So, so Jesus came in. People are saying, you know, he is king, he is king, he is king. You are awesome. And then he just comes directly into the temple. It is time to overthrow some things, you know. It's, it's typically called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is coming into this temple. And so from this passage, the thing that you see is he's going into this temple, and then he begins to talk out the people that are selling. The parallel text, the text that are found that are found as far as the other gospels go, they talk about he was angry or he was overthrowing tables or, you know, it's just like this huge commotion of things. So you picture Palm Sunday, you know, everyone's saying, you are awesome, you are king, you know, and they're celebrating Hosanna. And then he comes in and he's like, raw, you know, and he's like, you have turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. I want to talk to you a bit about context and heartbeat here and what you can just see in your head so we have like a clear picture. First of all, I want to talk about the temple and temple sacrifices. Furthermore, this is the time of Passover, okay? So we have Palm Sunday happening, Passover is happening. And so during the time of Passover, Hebrew people from all over come to Jerusalem, okay, from all over come to Jerusalem, because the Hebrew people are people who have not been home. Like, like they have a home, and then they're conquered, and then they're they're scattered. Then they have a home, and they're conquered, and they're scattered. And then they have a home, and they're conquered, and they're scattered. The Hebrew people are the people who are always, they're, they're, they're everywhere. They're scattered. They've, they've been in Assyria. They've been in Persia. They've been in Babylon. They've been in Egypt. In every place they are, they, they have homes, and they build their families, and they become established there. And some of them go back, and some of them stay. And so, so during the time of Passover, people all from all the providences come home. Okay, they come to Jerusalem. Okay, so 
So they're coming from Assyria, from Africa. They're coming from Persia. They're coming from all over. And this is like this time of crazy hustle and bustle. Like this is like the Jewish Christmas, okay? Let's start creating this. Don't worry. Anyway, so um, they're all coming together in Jerusalem. Furthermore, they're coming together in this time for sacrifice. This is the time that you sacrifice the the animals um, that you have prepared on behalf of your families, depending on how many families that uh, people in your family you have depends on how many animals that you have to bring to be sacrificed. So very early on during the sacrificial code, in the, the origins of the sacrificial code, these people would come from all over and they would bring like cows and sheep and goats and birds and like everything, right? All these d- different animals to atone for um, the sins of their family. The thing about a sacrifice for Hebrew people is they believe that for a sacrifice to be acceptable to God, the animal has to be flawless. It has to be perfect. So there are priests at the temple who inspect the animals, Okay, so you bring the animal and you say, here you go. And he says, thank you. And they're like, oh, this one has a spot, unacceptable, passes it back. But you say, but I came from, I've been hiking since January. Too bad, unacceptable. Okay, and or you would hand them a goat and then you say, here it is. And he's like, it has a broken arm. Well, goats don't have arms. They have broken legs, right? They have a broken leg, and and you're like, he didn't have that before, but he, he was, you know, and he fell, and he broke a leg. Unacceptable. And, and so there was a lot of pressure. So over time, what these people would do during their journey was they would carry their animals. They would carry their goats. They would carry their sheep to make sure they didn't get hurt. Right? And, and depending on how many people in your family you have, say you have five or six kids, it's a lot of sheep to carry. You know? And so they would have carts and they would hire people to carry goats for them. I mean, it was this process. And some of these people would hike for 47 days, 49 days, 75 days. Like it is a trek. And to be responsible for not only yourself, but your animals show up in perfect condition. So people in the temple had a great idea. They had a great idea. They could have sacrifices there at the temple that were perfect, right? They could have sheep and goats and cows and birds already at the temple for you. So you do not have to bring anything. You don't have to carry the goat over your shoulder. You don't have to protect your cattle. You don't have to, do you see what I'm saying? All you have to do is get here and buy a goat here. And these goats are acceptable. They're all acceptable. These sheep are perfect, but you got to pay for it. You got to pay a lot for it. And so, so this became a part of temple culture. As people could buy their sacrifices. People could b- buy these perfect things that they did not have to interact with at all. 
right? I mean, like, think about before, like before they had these sheep and goats and they are carrying this goat that they, that was born on their property, you know, and they gave birth to, and I don't, and and, and so, and, and, and then they have this personal relationship with this goat that they give over to a priest and they're like, it's, accept, it's acceptable. And then they take it in and then they slit its throat in front of you and say, your sins are forgiven. Now that has something to it. This temple, this temple, they're bringing in all these sacrifices. There are are millions and millions of Hebrew people coming. They all have animals to atone for, right? Think about the amount of animals that are being killed. Think about the sounds, okay? Think about the smells. Think about the amount of blood that is being shed at this temple, Okay, this is not a clean thing. There is fur and feathers and stench and blood. And like these priests are like, ill, right? This is, and just think about the chaos. Millions and millions of people and millions and millions of animals and blood and feathers and fur and, and, and like, ugh, right? And this is all happening. And then people are selling the sacrifices and, The other thing is the smell. I want to talk to you a bit about the smell because the blood, there's a lot of blood that happens at the temple. And so what do they do with the blood at the temple? They burn it. They burn the blood and it creates this horrible stench that goes up. And the Bible says it's like a pleasing aroma to God. Pause button. Greeley, Colorado. Everyone gives us, everyone gives us a hard time for how bad we smell. Oh, Greeley smells, Greeley smells. It's because the blood is burning, right? And when people say, say Greeley smells, kind of like, you're able to finish the sentence by saying, it smells like Jerusalem. And in that, that's what it is. When that blood is burning, that's what Passover smells like. It is, it smells like Jerusalem. So in that, Greeley is the Jerusalem of Colorado. And so I love Greeley, Colorado. Um, so, so, so just picture, you know, this blood is burning, the cows, the cows, and, and then... You know, and then there are these people selling these perfect sacrifices and people aren't even bringing them anymore. The upper class are just buying their sacrifices, don't even have to touch it. And they point to it and say, that one. And then someone will take it and their sins are atoned for. And it has turned into this disgusting, despicable thing. And this is what Jesus comes into. Okay, do you see the heart of this now? And so Jesus is coming in because at the core of him, it's grace and sacrifice and forgiveness of sins and and like the weight of pressing in. It is the engagement of the pain. It's the carrying the sheep. It's carrying the goat. It's going out into the desert for 40 days and experiencing it. It's like you don't bypass. There's no easy, there's no easy answer here. Right? And then he's coming in and saying, no. Because at the heart of our engagement with Jesus is the essence of prayer and crying out. It's, it's the feeling of the pain. It's the seeing the tears. It's the, the seeing the feathers and the blood. Like, you see what I'm saying? And so he's turning these tables over and he's, he's furious because what God intended to be an amazing 
crazy, deep experience to change the hearts of people, it turned into this easy, purchased, gross, controlling God thing. And you say, no, we are done with this here today. And it's beautiful. Like, like this is so much bigger than him just being angry that people are earning a profit. You see, he's confronting an economy that was never supposed to be. He was, he was confronting this economy of control. He was confronting this economy of judgment. And furthermore, he was confronting, me, confronting this economy of religion. And by going into the temple and exposing it for the truth of what it had been, he was threatening an economy of how it's been going for a super long time. And people had been threatened. Who? The people who, who, who were gaining from it. The people who were in charge of the temple. The, the people who taught at the temple. They were threatened. Here's the thing. It can, here, here we go. So every day he was teaching at the temple, but the ch chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus is teaching at the temple. He's teaching there every day now, right? Like he has built a home at the temple. You can't bypass the book of Hebrews and how it compares the heart and the body to the temple here, right? So I enjoy the idea of just saying, man, how has Jesus built a home in my heart and teach in the temple every day? This is a side note. But so, so Jesus is here at the temple and he's teaching every day. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it says they're trying to kill him. Right? This is the first time here in the gospel that that says that someone is trying to kill him. And who is trying to kill him? Right? Who is trying to kill Jesus? It isn't the government. It isn't the pagans. It's not the, the Assyrians or the Persians or the enemies. These are like the holy people. These are the good people. The, the people who say, I will atone for your sins for you. And they don't want to just help Jesus teach a better truth. They're not saying, hey, I want, you know, Jesus to tone it down a bit. They're actually trying to kill him. Why? Why? Because Jesus, in these times, he is teaching freedom, and he is teaching grace, and he is bringing himself. And freedom is a direct insult to control. And grace is a direct insult to judgment. And Jesus is a direct insult to religion. Grace, judgment, and religion are on trial here. And Jesus is a direct insult to all of those. Furthermore, they are threats. They are threats. These people feel threatened by the things he is teaching. They feel threatened by his very presence. And the only thing that they feel like they can do here is to kill him. So they devise a plan. Here it is. Everybody. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. 
Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? So here's what they do. They try to trap him. They try to trap him by saying something that, that, that isn't okay to their beliefs. And so they are threatened because they are threatened because he is threatened threatening their control. They are th he is th threatening their judgment that they have over people. And they are th he's threatening their economy of the, how the temple is done. And this is a big deal. So they corner him, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the, the law. They corner Jesus and say, hey, I have a question for you. Who gives you the authority to say the things you are saying, to do the things you are doing? Who told you you could do that? Okay, that's pretty easy. He could have said, who gives me the authority? I am the son of God, right? I am the son of God. Whatever he says to do, I will do. I get the authority from heaven. But he doesn't say that. He says, I have a question also. Which I love, right? Because he just doesn't give the answer. He says, I have a question also. And so, so, so he says, so for instance, John's baptism and the baptism that, that he brought people into, who gave him the authority to do that? Who gave him the authority? And then the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, they go off to t talk about it because they know in this moment there is like this puzzle that is happening. They're both trying to entrap each other, okay? Like this is fun Jewish thinking, okay? So enjoy it. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, teachers of the law, they're trying to kill Jesus and trap him by saying something he should not have said. So they say, who has given you the authority to do these things? Because if Jesus says, I get the authority from heaven, they can kill him because that's blasphemy, right? Because heaven and the temple and all that stuff. So, so then, then if he says he gets the authority from people, that isn't enough authority to confront the temple because the temple's God's. And so, so Jesus doesn't answer, but he gives them a question and said, consider John the Baptist, who gave him his authority. And then the passage continues. Here it is. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you what, by what authority I am doing these things. First of all, that's just fun, okay? Like, that is just fun. It's like Jesus is playing, it's a game. Like, this is a game. The Pharisees, by what authority are you doing these things? Hoping he's going to slip up. And then Jesus points to John, by what authority do you think he did these things? And they can't give an answer. So they said, I'm sorry, I can't answer you. And then he says, well, I can't answer you either, sorry. What else needs to be said about that? Like, like Jesus is brilliant and, oh, thank you, Bible. Um, then from there, he begins to teach these guys a parable. He tells a story because Jesus is one of the most brilliant storytellers ever. And he teaches in forms of parables because you can't hold people accountable to parables because if you do, the person could be in than them incorrectly. And so, and so Jesus teaches parables and, and he's teaching these parables and, and he begins to talk about a 
vineyard. And whenever you talk about vineyards and grapes and wine, there's a sense of divinity in heaven that, that Hebrew people see in that. Um, just so you know, there's like this poetic theme. Um, so so he t- talks about this parable, um, that, that there are these people that are taking care of a king's vineyard. And, and this vineyard has been taken care of by a group of people for a super long time. And, and the guy that, that owns a vineyard, he, he, he's very interested in checking in on how the vineyard is doing. And so he sends his servant to go check in on how this vineyard is doing. And so when the servant comes to the vineyard, the people who are taking care of the vineyard, they kill him. Why? I don't know. Because possibly the people taking care of the vineyard are controlling of it. They're very territorial of it. They're proud of it. I don't know. But the people of the vineyard kill the servant of the owner. And so the owner says, well, I'm going to send someone else because the, the other guy didn't come back. And so he sends a second servant to the vineyard to check in on how is the vineyard doing. How... And so the second guy goes, and they kill him too. Why are the people killing the servant of the owner of the vineyard? There are tons of different things that you're able to answer with the intent of that. Why would that happen? Because technically it was the the guy's vineyard to begin with, and technically these servants are over the keepers of the vineyard, and technically... But they kill him. Why? So then the king or the, the owner of the vineyard has this idea. He said, okay, well, well, possibly, possibly the keepers of the vineyard, the tenders of the vineyard, they, they didn't see who these servants had been. What if I send my own son? Like, what if I send my own son to the vineyard? They know who, the, who my son is. And so I'll send my son to the vineyard. They're not going to kill him. And so he sends his son to the vineyard. And the tenders of the vineyard, they do what they've always done. They killed the son of the owner of the vineyard too. And this is the essence of the parable that Jesus is talking. Here's here's the end, okay? So I want to just summarize it here. He says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. An inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Then Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning which is written? The stone of the builders, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. So, so there's this, this parable. He's talking about this vineyard and the owner of the vineyard is sending his servants and the, the tenants of the vineyard kill the servants. And then the owner of the vineyard sends his son. 
Okay, of course, you need to think about context here. Jesus just did this cleansing of the temple, right? This cleansing of the vineyard, this cleansing of the temple. The response of the, 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 the chief priests and the Pharisees is kill him, right? They want to know how to kill him. And then they try to entrap him in saying something wrong. And he says this parable, which is obviously all about them, Right? It's brilliant. It's obviously all about them. And he is standing there as the son. And he, he tells a story about how the tenants kill the son too. You've killed the servants and the tenants are going to kill the son too. And then he asks, how then should the owner of the vineyard respond? Should he go out and kill everyone who tended to the vineyard and give it to someone else? Because he's staring directly at the Pharisees and Sadducees and the, the keepers of the temple at this moment. And how do they respond? They respond by saying, no, God forbid. That couldn't happen. And then Jesus, and this is what I love, okay? So the response of these people are like, no, no, that couldn't happen. And Jesus responds by then saying, what then is the meaning of, right? He goes back to a question of the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Whenever a passage is talked about in the Old Testament, just a, a, like a tiny little part of a passage, it's assuming that you know the whole thing and the whole thing comes attached to it. So he is then asking just merely, tell me the, the intent of this tiny little verse. He's saying, tell me then what does Psalm 18 mean? Okay, remember Psalm 18. This is where you find the stone that the builders rejected is, has become the chief cornerstone. The psalm that says, God has, has, has crushed me, but he did not deliver me over to death. He has saved me. The gates of righteousness have been flung open and I walk through and I celebrate like like and I sing praises to God because the chief the stone that the builders rejected is now become the cornerstone the chief cornerstone and this in this he's talking about the temple the gates the opening the grace the freedom the salvation the this is how it works this is what you forgot you tried to buy sell steal and kill and destroy but this is what God's grace is all about and you forgot it and so what is happening here is <laughs> sorry um, what is happening here is 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 Jesus is saying, the, the tenants kill the son too. So how should the owner respond? Should he kill everyone and give the vineyard to someone else? And the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law say, no, he can't do that. And Jesus goes, you're right, he won't. Because Psalm 118 says, you know, this is how God's grace works. He won't do that. Because this sacrificial code is built on me, right? This is what you have forgotten. There is salvation, there is grace, there is providence, there is freedom. And you have 
launched a full assault on freedom. You have launched a full assault on grace and you have launched a full assault on me. But God's grace is sufficient because salvation rules. And that's what's happening in this passage. When Jesus says, then what is the meaning? He's bringing these teachers of the law back home and saying, you forgot. Because when you go on trial, you want the evidence to be staggering against you. That your heart is full of love and freedom and grace and salvation. That's what you want. Not the animals you bought in the temple courts that were never actually yours to begin with. So, pray with me. That was fun. God, we thank you for who you are as a God of grace and mercy, as a God of freedom, as a God of grace, as a God who sets people free, the God who invites us to experience an engagement, the God who comes into our hearts and teaches every day, the God who celebrates us, the God who authored our stories, the God who beats the drum of freedom. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you continually fight a battle of salvation for us. God, help us to forget everything else. Help us to come back to you and the things that you are saying, the things you have said, and the things that you are going to say. Help us to speak the vocabulary of sacrifice and the depth of sacrifice. Help us to see the blood again, the blood that you spilt. Help us to value the atonement that you gave. Bring us back home. It's easy to forget. Oh Lord, bring us back home. It's easy to forget. Bring us back home. It's easy to forget.